church. Uh, help us, we pray, now, to turn from our own foolish thinking and think your thoughts after you more faithfully. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This August, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram newspaper uh, reported that a cobra was on the loose in Dallas. It was a West African banded cobra. Do you know anything about those? Let me tell you. Um, known to be one of the most venomous snakes in the world. And if you're on lookout for one, they're between two and four feet long, or two and three feet long, mostly black and brown, except they have bands, hence the name, they have bands that are cream-colored uh, down their torso. Being from West Africa, you would think that a beast like that would stay where he belongs. And so the question came up, why is this reptile in Texas? And then residents began asking questions about um, permits for exotic animals and snake bite treatments. The reports were that the snake had escaped the owner's house. Uh, police first said that he had a permit, and then later, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department said the municipality where the owner lives prohibits people having snakes like this. Uh, various agencies tried unsuccessfully to corral the snake, but they did issue warnings and they said this, do not approach or try to catch the snake, it is considered dangerous. Well, the, snow, uh, the snake's owner, who uh, chose not to be identified, uh, said that he thought that it probably got out of its cage somehow and maybe went into the wall of his house where it died, or um, maybe it got out into Texas heat and died out there. But at any rate, uh, all that anybody knows is that this snake is AWOL. And the story kind of gives you the creeps, doesn't it? A poisonous snake on the loose makes life physically dangerous for anybody in the area. And so false teachers make life spiritually dangerous for anyone they may touch. Remember Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27? Uh, we've been memorizing it. It says... Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And Peter says in his first epistle, the devil as a roaring lion prowls around seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith. Satan would like to do nothing better than destroy your soul in hell. 
as followers of Christ, we want to stay on track with Jesus. We always want to be faithful to him. And we want to do so particularly in dangerous times. And so our theme this morning is the path of following Jesus. There's a path. Jesus says, walk in this way. Our theme is the path of following Jesus. And it comes to us from the section that Ajalon just read, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter chapter 16, uh, yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, I think you'll find it on page 1018. What we're going to look at is the, uh, the problem that Peter identifies, and then God's solution, and then makes some points of application. So it's pretty simple. So 2 Peter chapter 1, then, verses 16 and following. What's the danger? Why is Peter agitated? In a word, there is a real existential threat from false teachers, and the danger is at least two-pronged here. Beware, first of all, of false teachers' teachings. I know, it seems a little redundant, but in verse 16, Peter says this, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems like a funny place or a strange place to start if you're talking about following Jesus. Well, we didn't do this. But people in Peter's day used this word myth as a um, catch-all term. It, meant, it, it could mean uh, stories, fables, legends, tales about pagan Greco-Roman gods and or their escapades. This is what false teachers did, um, but not the Apostle Peter. He didn't try to convince anybody through some sneaky, made-up stories. But the false teachers, they did just that. It also appears as if the false teachers accused Peter and other preachers that were associated with him of doing this very thing, of using myths about Jesus to try to win points with people. False teachers' teachings is one threat to the church of Jesus Christ. It's not the only one. False teaching leads to sinful living. The two go hand in hand. And much of the rest of 2 Peter develops this relationship. But just so that you'll get the idea, here are, are a couple examples. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, this is what we read in verses 1 to 3. There will be false teachers among you 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of their way, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you. Now just go down to verse 18, same chapter. Peter says, they, that is, false teachers, entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, Peter's readers and you live in the middle of danger. Think about yourself as in a spiritual... Uh, spiritual war zone. False teachers view Bible truths as nothing more than old wives' tales. They're without substance, without authority, without ap ap applicability, um, really of no value in our fast-paced world. And false teachers can lead weak and uninstructed people into sinful life choices and ultimately to spiritual death. You know, Thursday night we had the Rich Lines here to tell us about life in Uruguay. That is considered to be one of the most secular countries in South America. And so somebody asked Mark, what's it like to live in a secular society? And he said, well, said we, have, we put book tables out. And people come and look at them, but they're mostly interested in psychology. You try to talk to them about the Lord, and eh, you can't make much progress. And the reason? Well, for secularists, God doesn't have any place in their lives. The result, we might add, of false teaching. And so the point for all of us is this, beware. The teaching to which you listen, the preaching to which you submit yourself, will shape your life for good or for ill. So that's the problem, that's the danger uh, with which Peter, his audience, and we are faced, and we want to now ask the question, what's God's solution? What's his solution to false teachers, and what's his solution to false teaching? And it's simple. The clear truth of God's word. That's the solution to this problem. Understanding and embracing the clear truth of God's word. In what Peter does next, he is going to offer the historically grounded truth to us. Uh, he's going to teach and he's going to preach the, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we see that from a couple different angles. Uh, first of all, go back to verse 16 again, please. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's in view there? His capability his ability to function effectively, his wonderful works. That's what's in view when we talk about the power of Christ. And Peter had seen it firsthand, hadn't he? 
for example, in Peter's presence, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Um, healed a woman that had a bleeding disease that nobody could cure. And then, of course, you remember, Jesus beckons Peter to come to him on a storm-tossed sea, which he does, and uh, then he looks around and he sees the winds and the waves, and he gets scared, and he starts to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and rescues him. Peter could tell readers of many examples of Christ's power. But verse 16 also tells us that Peter taught and preached about our Lord's coming. And you say to yourself, yeah, what a timely sermon. First Sunday of Advent. This is, uh-uh. When Peter talks about our Lord's coming, he does not have in mind Jesus' birth. You say, how do you know? Easy. He uses a word that's attached to Christ's second coming. You find it in the New Testament about 18 times. It denotes Christ's personal, visible, triumphant return at the close of our world's history. History isn't just going to unfold willy-nilly, eternally. God is going to bring it to an end. Jesus is coming back again. And that's what, Paul has in, or that's what Peter has in mind here. Uh, another place in which it's used, in which you get this notion of the return of Christ, is over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, and they read like this. May the Lord establish your hearts before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The solution to false teachers is a declaration of Christ's power and his coming, and those are rooted in the truths of God's word. But there's another. Now notice the end of verse 16, please. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and then he unpacks that idea of eyewitness and majesty in verses 17 and 18, and he says, when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is that? It's a recitation of more history. What we believe are not myths. They're grounded in historical fact, and that's what... Peter has in view here. Now, this is an amazing event, and it's recorded in each of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. It's called our Lord's transfiguration. You know the storyline. Jesus 
calls Peter, James, and John to himself. He takes them up to a high mountain, and there he's changed in front of them. His face shines like the sun. His clothes like the light. Moses and Elijah appear. And they talk with him. And the disciples, they are terrified and fall face down on the ground. And Jesus reaches out to them and he says, come on, get up, don't be afraid. They do, and they look around and Jesus is there. James and Peter and John are there, but no Moses, no Elijah. Now, let's try to reframe this in a modern setting for the sake of contrast and also for the sake of making a teaching point. We're going to put it in a modern context, and you are there with Jesus and Peter and James and John. And you're kind of pinching yourself. You can't believe this that is transpiring. And then it dawns on you. This is a moment of true significance. And what does any modern person do in a moment of true significance? Pulls out his iPhone to record it, right? And so you push the button. And, and then you're doing selfies. Elijah, could you move over just a little bit so I can get, you know? And now tell the truth. If that's what happened with you, wouldn't you have been tempted to post something of it on Facebook or some other? Wouldn't you? And the reason for doing that, let's also be honest with each other, the reason for doing it is because it would have an occasion for you to say, I am really the important person that I hope you believe me to be. Right? Or maybe not, if the gospel has worked down into your life and um, you understand the significance of the transfiguration. First of all, the transfiguration shows us the path of discipleship. Jesus is going to the cross where he's going to suffer and die. He's going to be raised to glory only after that. And so, first is suffering, then is glory. But that's not just for Jesus, that's for all the people of God. First suffering, then glory, right? And the transfiguration then is a pointer. It's a preview of something that's ahead. And what is that? We've already touched on it. It points us ahead to the second coming of Christ. Jesus is going to be changed before the world. Now, let me say it gently to you, but you really... Uh, seizing the opportunity to do a post on Facebook, you are really not the focal point of the transfiguration. It's not there so that you can promote yourself. And consider this too. Peter could have made other references to Jesus if he had wanted. He could have said something about his post-resurrection interaction with Christ. Or he could have said something about being there for the ascension. But he doesn't do it. He focuses on the transfiguration 
Why? Because those other events, as wonderful as they were, don't get us to this idea of majesty. And this is prophetic majesty. Jesus is changed in front of Peter and the others with a view to his second coming, which is down the road yet. And it gives them, and it gives us, a glimpse of the future of Christ's triumphant return. What will happen then? He will receive the glory of all peoples. He will right every wrong. In his return, he will wipe away every tear. And he will reign forever in universal majesty. Peter's readers needed hope. They lived in difficult times, real false prophets troubled them. They probably knew of some who had strayed from the faith, perhaps to their own eternal destruction. And they may well have thought, as we do sometimes, it looks like, it feels like, wrong is going to triumph. So Peter gives you this truth straight from the combined experience of the early church. It wasn't just him who was there. He wasn't the only one. James and John were there as well. And this, is, this history is intended to give you hope even when you are in your very darkest place. In the second place, then, the solution to false teachers and their teachings is the declaration, Jesus is the Lord of history and he is coming again. Well, so where does this leave us? Peter gives us a kind of summary statement in verses 19 to 21. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God blessed the people of the Old Testament with his truth that pointed ahead to what he would ultimately do through Jesus. And we are in a better place than they in some respects. Yeah, we suffer as Old Testament saints suffered. But Peter says here that we have the Old Testament prophecies made more sure with the added New Testament revelation. The Holy Spirit who shaped both the content and the form of those first 39 books of the Bible now has given us 27 more. And to top it off, the very same Spirit who gave us the Bible guides us in understanding it. Everything is not equally clear in the Bible. Let's say that to ourselves a hundred times. Uh, everything is not equally clear. But, but, and this is a good but, 
There's no reason for despair. The content of the Bible is rooted in God's mind and his will, and the interpretation, the right interpretation of the Bible, is rooted in God's mind and in his will, and the way he's designed things, the clearer passages explain the less clear passages. Generally speaking, the Old Testament explains to us, uh, the New Testament explains to us the Old Testament. And so you see, the Lord by his spirit, who is at work in your heart right now, will give you all that you need to understand his word so that you can become all he's intended you to be. Is that good news or what? So this is where we are. This is the solution to the danger that false teachers pose. So what's the application? Well, look at verse 19. We don't have to fiddle around about this very much. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Jesus is coming again. He is the bright and morning star who is bringing light into our sin-darkened world. And in, until he comes again, the call to God's people is, get in his word. Do it the way you would if you'd lost something on a pitch black night and you just had the light on your cell phone. Do it that way. Be intense. You do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place. Paying attention to God's word. It's his will. Do you see it there? And because it's his will, he promises to go with you every step of the way in not only getting into his word, but understanding his word. So read the Bible. It's Peter's message to you this morning. And you say, well, what do you do? You know, years ago, I somewhere got, the, I'll tell you where I got it. I got it from a pastor, a uh, West Coast pastor named Al Edwards. He said, you know what I do? I read the book of Proverbs uh, one chapter a day because it's designed to give us wisdom. So it's easy to keep track. This is the fifth, so this afternoon go home and read the fifth chapter of Proverbs. And tomorrow, guess which chapter read? And how about on Tuesday? Well, that's the seventh. All right. And then after a while, I thought, well, that's a good idea. Um, maybe it would help if I were to do the same thing with the Psalms. There's actually an app, which is called Five Psalms. If you want it, I'll give it to you. Uh, it, it pops up five different Psalms every day. And so you can get through the book of Psalms once a month. It's easy. And then if you want to do better than that, you can get lots and lots of different apps so you can read the whole Bible in a year. My grandmother, who didn't know anything about cell phones, she said, here's what you do. You read three chapters a day and seven on Sunday. Then you get through the Bible in a year. Well, you could, you could implement that if you wanted to. Jay Hawkins is 27. Listen as he describes how paying attention to the Bible has changed him. 
He says, I came to know the Lord at age eight. I've been in the church for 19 years and knew many Bible stories, but had never read the Bible, the whole Bible myself. Reading the whole Bible transformed my faith from a sweater that kept me warm or a parachute that saved me from death to a lens. I could see myself, others, and the world differently. Here are two ways. Number one, it gave me a progress report on my spiritual health. Reading the entire Bible helped me realize how much I needed to grow. Before whole Bible reading, I measured my spiritual health by what I was able to abstain from. After whole Bible reading, I measured my spiritual health by my compassion, empathy, mercy, and love for others. Number two, this gave me new passions, desires, and priorities. Before whole Bible reading, I was all about success, promotion, more money, more prestige. Once I discovered God cared about my love for the defenseless, poor, needy, orphaned, and hopeless, it realigned things. I became more passionate about practical aspects of the gospel. My wife and I began helping pregnant moms. I returned to college so I could better understand how to help the marginalized. And then his final uh, exhortation. If you haven't ever read the Bible, or if you haven't read it in a while, you can start small. That's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. It can change your life any day you give it a chance. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter. We thank you that he has brought your truth to us, and we ask you to convict us by it and encourage us by it and help us to be faithful as we walk on the path of discipleship. And we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.